This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue. Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. A collection of short quotes on instrumental music in the public worship of the Church, as read by Samantha Ellosice. Tape number three. Continuing on with quote number 17, a warning against the false and dangerous views of James Jordan concerning worship, a book review of Kevin Reed's Canterbury Tales by Reg Barrow, 1996. Furthermore, if we really desire reformation in our day, the words of John Knox to the English nation in 1559 calling for national repentance over the recent apostasy during Mary's reign will be as valuable as any that we will hear today. Quote, For the first point, touching reformation of religion, you must at once so purge and expel all dregs of papistry, superstition, and idolatry, that you, O England, must judge and hold execrable and accursed whatsoever God has not sanctified unto you by his word, or by the action of our Master, Christ Jesus. The glistering beauty of vain ceremonies, the heaping of things pertaining nothing to edification, by whomsoever they were invented, justified, or maintained, ought at once to be removed, and so trodden under the obedience of God's word, that continually this sentence of your God be present in your heart and mouth. Not that which appeareth good in thy eyes shalt thou do to the Lord thy God, but what the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that shalt thou do. Add nothing to it, diminish nothing from it. O dissembling hypocrites, plain messengers of Satan, now I do write, which sometime I have said to your faces, that whatsoever God, in matters of religion, has not sanctified by his expressed word, the same I say before his majesty, remains execrable, polluted, and defiled. And so now, in few words, this is the first point which your true revision, re- conversion requires, to wit, that only his word reform his religion. The other part, touching the instruction of the people, stands much in the faithful diligence of those to whom the charge of preaching shall be committed. But when I remember that horrible confusion which before was maintained, even by those which would be esteemed chief pillars of religion, I do more fear to be plain in this matter than in all that which before I have spoken. For it may be that in speaking the simple truth 
I may displease those whom willingly I would offend for no earthly profit. Nevertheless, seeing the cause is not mine, but pertains to Christ Jesus, and to the feeding of that flock, which so earnestly and tenderly he did commend to Peter, and to all faithful pastors to the world's end, whatsoever man shall judge, I dare not cease in God's name to require of you a severe reformation of those things which were before utterly disordered. And first, in the name of of the Lord Jesus, I require of you that no dumb dog, no poisoned and pestilent papist, none who before has persecuted God's children or obstinately maintained idolatry, be placed above the people of God to infect and poison, for other profit they shall do more, the souls of those whom Christ Jesus has redeemed with his precious blood. End of quote. Taken from A Brief Exhortation to England in Selected writing, Writings of John Knox, A Presbyterian Heritage Publication, 1995, pages 594 through 598. Reed's book, The Canterbury Tales, is in keeping with Knox's biblical admo- admonition to flee idolatry, all worship not instituted by God, and all false teachers. In fact, these very truths are what make this book such a valuable testimony against the present error. In conclusion, Reed's Canterbury Tales is a great introduction to historic Reformation worship, using Jordan as an example of what misguided zeal and the darkness of dilettantism can produce in this area. Reed writes clearly and has a very good grasp of the scriptural and historical data concerning worship issues. He also includes an excellent bibliography which clearly demonstrates the point at issue, showing that Jordan has jettisoned the historic Reformed view of biblically regulated worship, as have most modern Reformed churches and Christian Reconstructionists, all his and their protests to the contrary notwithstanding. Quote number 18. The preface and bibliography to the rare bound photocopy entitled The Duty and Perpetual Obligation of Social Covenanting. This preface and bibliography is by Greg Price, pastor of the Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, March 1996. The material found in this bound photocopy addresses a forgotten and neglected ordinance of God, social covenanting. God's people in times of repentance and thanksgiving, trial and blessing have been a covenanting people. In the most pure times of ecclesiastical and civil reformation throughout history, both church and state under the mediatorial rule of Christ have by the grace of God bound themselves together by covenant to promote and defend the true Christian religion. The first document adopted by the Westminster Assembly was in fact the Solemn League and Covenant. 1644. It united the kingdoms of Scotland, England, and Ireland in a, in a covenanted reformation of both church and state in order to preserve, promote, and defend the true Christian religion, as summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechisms, Directory for Public Worship, and Form of Church Government, and in order to expose and uproot all false teaching contrary to the Scripture and these standards. Furthermore, it was not only the desire of the Westminster Assembly 
to unite in covenant the three British kingdoms, but rather to include in this covenanted reformation all the reformed churches throughout Europe. Consider the goal of the assembly as, as summarized by Hetherington. Quote, there was one great and even sublime idea brought somewhat indefinitely before the Westminster Assembly which has not yet been realized, the idea of a Protestant union throughout Christendom, Christendom not merely for the purpose of counterbalancing popery, but in order to purify, strengthen, and unite all true Christian churches, so that with combined energy and zeal they might go forth in, in glad compliance with the Redeemer's commands teaching all nations and preaching the everlasting gospel to every creature under heaven. This truly magnificent and also truly Christian idea seems to have originated in the mind of that distinguished man, Alexander Henderson. It was suggested by him to the Scottish commissioners and by them partially brought before the English Parliament, requesting them to direct the assembly to write, to write letters to the Protestant churches in France, Holland, Switzerland, and other Reformed churches, and along with these letters were sent copies of the Solemn, Solemn League and Covenant, a document which might itself form the basis of such a Protestant Union. The deep-thinking divines of the Netherlands apprehended the idea, and in their answer not only expressed their approbation of the Covenant, but also desired to join in with the British kingdoms. Nor did they content themselves with the mere expression of approval and willingness to join. A letter was soon afterwards sent to the assembly from The Hague, written by Duraeus, the celebrated John Dury, offering to come to the assembly, and containing a copy of a vow which he had prepared and tendered to the distinguished Oxenstiern, Chancellor of Sweden, wherein he bound himself, quote, to prosecute a reconciliation between Protestants in point of religion, end of quote. On one occasion, Henderson procured a passport to go to Holland, most probably for the purpose of prosecuting this grand idea. But the intrigues of politicians, the delays caused by the conduct of the independents, and the narrow-minded Erastianism of the English Parliament all conspired to prevent the Assembly from entering farther into that truly glorious Christian enterprise. Days of trouble and darkness came. Persecution wore out the great men of that remarkable period. Pure and vital Christianity was stricken to the earth and trampled underfoot. End of quote. Taken from William Hetherington's History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines. Published by Stillwater's Revival Books, pages 337 to 339. The material presented herein is, is commended to the reader with the sincere prayer and confidence that God will again restore the Church of Jesus Christ to a glorious covenanted reformation one that will even surpass that one to which she has attained at the time of the Westminster Assembly. However, when the Lord brings that future covenanted reformation, it will not be limited to only three kingdoms of the earth, but by the grace and power of Christ our King, it will be a covenanted reformation that will encompass all of the nations of the earth. Psalm 2, verse 6-12 Isaiah 2, verse 1-4 Matthew 28, verse 1-20 and will bring to the church a, a visible unity and uniformity that, unlike pleas for unity today, is firmly grounded upon the truth. The material contained in this compilation was gathered together by the session of the Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton and Prince George.
Its 210 pages contain the following items as listed in the following bibliography concerning social covenanting. Do Right of Presbyteries by Samuel Rutherford, pages 130 through 139. The Works of George Gillespie, volume 2, by George Gillespie, pages 71 through 88. An Apologetic Relation by John Brown of Wamfrey, pages 167 through 175, also pages 181 through 207. Distinctive Principles of the Reformed Presbyterian Church by David Scott, pages 14 through 90. The Reformed Presbyterian Catechism by William Roberts, pages 134 through 152. An Explanation and Defense of the Terms of Communion by the Reformed Presbytery, pages 181 through 187. Act, Declaration, and Testimony for the Whole of the Covenanted Reformation by the Reformed Presbytery, pages 11 through 23. The Arkansas Renovation of the National and Solemn League and Covenants pages by the Reformed Presbytery, pages 115 through 140. The National Covenant of Scotland by the Church of Scotland, 1639, page 345 to 354, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, published by the Free Presbyterian Publications. The Solemn League and Covenant by the Westminster Assembly, 1644, pages 355 through 360, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, published by Free Presbyterian Publications. A Solemn Acknowledgement of Public Sins and Breaches of the Covenant by the Church of Scotland, 1648, pages 361 through 368 in the Westminster Confession of Faith, published by Free Presbyterian Publications. The End of Instrumental Music in the Public Worship of the Church The Psalms in Worship An Exegesis uh, of Colossians 3, verse 16, and Ephesians 5, verse 19. A series of convention papers bearing upon the place of the Psalms in the worship of the Church, edited by Professor John McNodder, Professor of New Testament Literature and Criticism in the Algeny Theological Seminary, 1907, Pittsburgh. The Preface under the direction of the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church of North America, two conventions were held in autumn of 1905, the first in Pittsburgh and second in Chicago, to promote the claims of the Psalms in the field of worship. The, mater the material of the present volume consists of the papers read at what were large and representative gatherings. Inasmuch as the same list of subjects was adopted for both meetings, each theme has two treatments. For the most part, these pa related papers are mutually supplemental. The volume covers the ground indicated by its title, Building Upon the Scriptural Principle of Divine Appointment as Set Forth in the Westminster Standards. It contains a comprehensive statement of the reasons for the exclusive use in worship of the Bible Psalms. Definitely argumentative discussions of a doctrinal and critical kind are in the forefront. Others of broader type succeed. These latter range along historical, literary, and practical lines and in their own way make effective contribution to the strength of the position maintained. 
In providing for the publication of these convention addresses, the General Assembly had more in mind than a denominational interest. There was the further purpose to submit them to the serious consideration of the Christian Church at large. The Psalter, composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the common possession of the whole family of God, its ordained manual of praise. It is the oldest hymn book in existence, having a connected record throughout thousands of years down to our own times, and it is consecrated forever as having been the hymnary of our Savior and of the Apostolic Church. In the light of its age-long history, of its rich poetry, and of its unsectarian Catholic character, of its freedom from error, of its well-proportioned thought, of its theological depth and spiritual quality, of its wealth of evangelical matter, of its supremacy in the utterance of devotion and religious experience, and of the unexampled strains in which it celebrates the glories of God, there is ample occasion for the plea that the churches of Christ recognize in the Psalter their heritage of sacred song as against a human hymnody with its necessary imperfections that he who inhabits the praises of Israel may be pleased to make use of this volume in restoring the Psalms to their true place in the hearts and on the lips of Christian believers is the prayers of the Assembly's Convention Committee. John McNodder, Chairman, John A. Henderson, Joseph Kyle, David Reed Miller, James A. Reed, and J.C. Taggart. A special exegesis of Colossians 3, verse 16 and Ephesians 5, verse 19 by Professor jo- John McNodder, Doctor of Divinity, Alangay, Pennsylvania. As even a glance at their contents shows, the epistle to the Ephesians and that to the Colossians are closely alike. About half of the verses in the former have parallels in the latter, and there are other resemblances as well. This twinship is explained when it is remembered that the two letters were written at the same time and to communities similarly circumstanced. Among the coincidences in thought and language are to be numbered the texts under study, which almost repeat each other. Turning to these duplicate exhortations, it appears at once that they are of peculiar interest in that they yield a glimpse of the simple worship of primitive days. Their value in this direction is heightened by the fact that one of them is addressed to a plurality of churches, it being now accepted broadly that Ephesians was sent as a circular to Christians in the province of Asia. True, the question question has been raised whether they have to do with worship at all, whether Paul is not touching merely upon the intercourse of believers in their family life, at their love feasts, their social gatherings and other meetings, and suggesting mutual edification by song. On this mooted point, the common verdict is that the main, though not exclusive, reference is to the stated services of the public assembly, which seem to have been of a free and elastic nature. That worship, as well as joint instruction, is in mind is indicated by the concluding words in each citation, singing with grace in your hearts to God, and singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. With the foregoing inquiry answered, it may be added as beyond doubt that all the resources of the early church as regards her treasury of sacred song are embraced in the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs here mentioned. In the three terms the inventory is is evidently complete. 
Here then are classical passages which must be consulted in connection with any investigation into the hymnology of the apostolic period, passages which have a decisive bearing, therefore, on what compositions may be employed properly in the ordinance of praise. As to their meaning, there has been pronounced disagreement. The advocates of uninspired songs in worship look on them as strongholds, arguing therefrom that in the age of the apostles the Psalter was supplemented by new lyrics, and that therefore, as a necessary consequence, the legitimacy of the modern hymn is established. Some writers on this side declare themselves in a very dogmatic way, dismissing lightly the idea of contradiction. On the other hand, it is alleged that there is no cause for supposing that that Paul's hymns and spiritual songs were anything different from the canonical psalms and that there is no license here for the use of other devotional pieces than the psalms in the worship of God. The latter is the view which will be upheld in this exegesis. It challenges the opposite interpretation as being but a surmise and offers a series of substantial reasons for its own correctness. To begin with, it should be realized that present usage, as regards the debated terms, plays no part in fixing their sense. One can be misled by the seemingly familiar phraseology and think forthwith of the hard and fast distinction now made between psalms and hymns. But we are deciphering what was penned in A.D. 61 or 62, long centuries before any of the uninspired productions in the hymnals of today were extant. In order, therefore, to make these lines intelligible, we must transport ourselves back into that past to which Paul and his readers belong, and there undertake our exposition with open-mindedness and cautious discrimination. As an approach toward identifying the poems intended by these designations, there is clear evidence at hand that all of them were divinely inspired, indicted under the extraordinary influence of the Holy Spirit. Preliminary to what is deemed decisive proof, certain considerations which go to make this important important claim a strong probability may be adduced. First, in these verses, the direction given is not to prepare or provide songs of praise, but only to sing them. On this, we must be permitted to insist. But in the absence of an express warrant for doing so, would not these Asia Minor Christians have been chary about writing original hymns for rendition in worship when the Psalter written on the mountaintops of inspiration and full of the things of God was everywhere as is allowed a congregational handbook? Is it likely that any self-advised and unaided would have had the temerity or the desire to attempt such an innovation? Second, furthermore, had any of Gentile extraction exercised this liberty would it not have excited strong protest among their Jewish brethren? The first converts to Christianity were generally Jews. These formed the beginnings of the churches in the towns and cities of the Roman Empire, and for a time they must have had prestige and privileged position. They brought with them from the synagogue the highly cherished psalms, those psalms which were associated with their holiest traditions and which were known to have been meet for the Master's use, and thereby doubly consecrated. Clinging to these with an inherited reverence, they must have resented vigorously an uninspired Gentile hymnody. The fact, therefore, that on the subject of praise there is not the slightest echo of discord or controversy in the apostolic church indicates that there was no intrusion of any alien element. Thirdly, 
It is altogether improbable that hymnists, as measured by even human standards, could be found in the churches of this date. The Gentile members within whose circle the search is confined had been but recently rescued from the ignorance and pollution of hedonism, and they had immature, often faulty understanding of religious doctrine. Their literary capabilities, too, must have been limited, for not many wise after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble were called. Indeed, the low social status of the early Christians was the, was the standing reproach of hostile critics. All this being true, where are we to find the mellow piety, the spiritual discernment, the education, and the poetic genius and art which must have been taken for granted if uninspired songs fit to be named alongside the Psalms are here in mind? Men who deny the geniusness of Ephesians and Colossians allege that the reference is to just such songs and then proceed to conclude that for this very reason, among others, these epistles betray themselves as later than the apostolic era. Fourthly, if the psalms of scripture are intended by the word psalms, as is assumed for the present, it is quite unthinkable that Paul would link human compositions with those of the Spirit of God and direct that they be used for the same end. It is true that in most hymnals the inspired and the uninspired are intermixed, regardless of the chasm in thought and tone which separates them. Occasionally, owing to more conservatism and a finer appreciation of the pro properties, this confusion is modified to the extent that the psalms are kept together and assigned the first pages. But all of this is neither here nor there. We are interpreting Paul, and he had exact conceptions of inspiration. It was he who distinguished the Old Testament writings, inclusive, inclusive of the Psalter, as God-breathed literature, clothed, clothed with inviolable sanctity. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. It was he who described himself an apostle of the New Covenant, as receiving truth by divine revelation, and as giving it utterance, not in words which, man, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Spirit teacheth. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13. It seems incredible, therefore, that in this instance he should trample upon a distinction which elsewhere he guards jealously and puts uninspired songs in competition with those inspired as having equal teaching worth. What has been noticed thus far affords cogent grounds for the belief that the hymns and spiritual songs of our passages were all of inspired quality. The crowning demonstration of this, however, lies in the descriptive term spiritual. It matters nothing in the argument whether this adjective is taken as limiting each of the preceding words or not. There are those who think that it extends to the psalms and hymns, an opinion which is not out of harmony with the Greek syntax. Footnote. So Hoffman, Soden, Cope, Rosenmuller, Walter Lawry, and James Dick, Belfast, T.K. Abbott, in the International Critical Commentary, leaves the question open. Under this view, the position of the adjective is looked upon as determining its force. While qualifying each substantive, it takes the nearest gender. End of footnote. But of course, there is no rule demanding this. And on the other hand, as will appear later, there is sufficient reason for restricting spiritual to songs alone. At the same time, it reflects character on all the compositions of praise here specified. The three words may be synonyms, as we prefer to think, 
Or it may be said with Meyer that the spiritual songs are the genus of which the psalms and hymns are the species, or spiritual songs may denote the lowest class of a triple category. In any event, when the phrase spiritual is defined, it is certain that the psalms and hymns, no less than the songs, are duly characterized. Now what is the import of the word? In answer to this pivotal question, we affirm that the Greek original, which is Greek word, has no such latitude of meaning as spiritual has in English, and that it designates commonly whatever is immediately given or produced by the Spirit of God. It is construed thus by an overwhelming majority of critical authorities, including those of the greatest weight. A few special citations will not be amiss. Dr. Warfield of Princeton writes thus in the Presbyterian Review, July, number of 1880, quote, Of the 25 instances in which the word occurs in the New Testament, in no single case does it sink even as low in its reference as the human spirit, and in 24 of them is derived from, Greek word, the Holy Ghost. In this sense of belonging to or determined by the Holy Spirit, the New Testament usage is uniform with the one single exception of Ephesians 6 verse 12, where it seems to refer to the higher though fallen superhuman intelligences. The appropriate translation for it in each case is spirit-given or spirit-led or spirit-determined. End of quote. In the Expositor, 3rd Series, Volume 4, page 137, Dr. Warfield repeats himself substantially and adds that this interpretation, quote, is gradually becoming recognized by the best expositors, end of quote. Dr. Laidlaw of the United Free Church College, Edinburgh, treating the term in Hastings' Dictionary of the Bible, says that, quote, everything, Greek word, spiritual, is a divine product or creation, end of quote. A.D., in his commentary on Ephesians, see comment on Ephesians 1 verse 3, remarks that Greek word means, quote, produced by or belonging to the Holy Spirit, end of quote, and adds that this is, quote, the ruling sense of the epithet of the New Testament, end of quote. Dr. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, see comment on 1 Corinthians 10 verse 3, says, quote, One of the most common meanings of the word spiritual in Scripture is derived from the Spirit. Spiritual gifts and spiritual blessings are gifts and blessings of which the Spirit is the author. End of quote. The same position is maintained by such New Testament lexicographers as Creamer, Parkhurst, Robinson, and Thayer, and is advocated in McClintock and Strong's Encyclopedia. Among others who comment on the word, Greek word, as it is found elsewhere in the New Testament and advance the meaning given are Barnes, Chalmers, Dene, Farrar, Fawcett, Fron Mueller, Lang Commentary, Gifford, Godet, Gore, Hort, Kling, Lang Commentary, Moule, Nieder, Olshausen, Sande, Schmeidel, Stanley, Moses Stewart, and Marvin R. Vincent. Coming to authorities on the passages under review, many of the more eminent and scholarly sustain the same exegesis and account these spiritual songs as inspired, 
the production of the Holy Ghost in the Department of Poetry. See the New Testament lexicons by Creamer, by Robinson, and by Thayer. From commentators on Colossians or Ephesians, we cite Alford, Beat, Braun, the Lang Commentary, Sheen, Cohn, Dale, Adie, Ellicott, Findlay, McLaren, Mayer, Riddle, Salmond, and Tholock. Hodge and Barnes are not included in this last list, and their adverse interpretation furnishes an, in, an instructive warning of how expositors may be swayed by personal inclination and practice. Dealing with the term in Ephesians 5.19, Hodge writes thus, quote, This may mean either inspired, that is, derived from the Spirit, or expressing spiritual thoughts and feelings. This latter is the more probable. End of quote. And yet, in every instance except this one in which, Greek word, occurs in the New Testament books on which he has commented, Hodge holds stoutly to the other idea of the word, and even here he is constrained to admit it as applicable. Barnes is guilty of the same fault. The sum of our findings thus far is, first, that there is a body of strong presumptive evidence for the inspiration of Paul's psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and second, that the adjective, Greek word, lifts them to this high level beyond peradventure, stamping them as written by poetically gifted men under the extraordinary impulse and guidance of the Holy Spirit. In keeping with such a conclusion is the following from an editorial in the North British Review of Edinburgh. Quote, it is probable that while the miraculous influences of the Spirit continued upon earth, no uninspired songs were admitted into the public or private devotions of Christians. End of quote. Volume 27, page 195. Even if we went no farther, it would appear, and we so assert, that in Ephesians 5, verse 19, and Colossians 3:16, there is not a scintilla of warrant for the use of humanly composed lyrics in worship, though other inspired odes than those in the book of Psalms should be countenanced in these passages, it were a bewildering feat of inference that would legalize therefrom the multitudinous hymnology of today, for this has been wrought at, out at the discretion and according to the wisdom of fallible men. Authorization for such an uninspired hymnology is imperatively required, but they labor in vain who seek it here. To overcome this objection, there are some of our hymn-singing brethren who claim that a hymn penned by a good man and embodying evangel evangelical sentiment may be rated as inspired. Thus, Dr. R. Sheen Edgar of Dublin wrote recently, quote, His, that is the Holy Spirit's inspirations, were not exhausted when the canon was complete, and if he inspires prayers which have never been embodied in any prayer book, canonical or otherwise, is it not reasonable to believe that he has likewise inspired the poets who have devoted themselves to sacred song, although their spiritual songs could never be placed in the canon? End of quote. Quoted from Progressive Presbyterianism, page 144. Such a contention leads to the most perilous consequences, hiding a lurking though an unconscious infidelity. It strikes at the scriptural doctrine of inspiration, confusing it with spiritual illumination, just as was done by Schleiermacher and his school. 
inconsistent as it is with the faith of the church universal, which has always made a marked distinction between the writings of inspired men and those of ordinary believers, it merits nothing but censure. Estimating these psalms and hymns in spiritual songs as all inspired, several conjectures remain open. The first is that Paul, having in mind the strange exaltation which pervaded the apostolic church, alludes to new miraculous songs improvised on the spur of the moment by those in a condition of inspired ecstasy, that is, he alludes to a rhythmic form of the gift of tongues. This theory has no foundation because, first, a store of existing lyrics is presupposed in the language of these passages. Evidently, Paul enjoys, enjoins his readers to sing what was then accessible and does not intimate unknown non-existent oaths yet to be extemporized. Moreover, the psalms referred to were in existence and the drunken songs of heathen feasts which stand in antithesis in one of the contexts Ephesians 5 or 8, verse 18 were ready-made. Why not these hymns and spiritual songs also? Second, there is no proof that lyrical endowments were among the grace gifts the charismatic activities of the Pauline churches. Third, Paul said of the gift of tongues that it did not edify the church except under certain limitations. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 through 33. And therefore, so far as instruction was concerned, he must have depreciated kindred outbursts of feeling voiced in song. Here, however, he he urges what is of prime value for teaching and admonition. Colossians 3, verse 16. Since ecstatic impromptus are not to be thought of, let us turn to another theory, that is, that that inspired songs original to the age and prepared for general use by the apostles or other supernaturally gifted men are referred to. This also is baseless and untenable. First, there is no recorded divine commission in the New Testament constituting hymnists, nor is there any promised help of the Holy Spirit in a lyrical direction. Second, among the diversities of gifts bestowed in rich measure at the outset of the present dispensation, there is no mention of that of, that of a sacred poesy and yet in Old Testament times, hymn-making was just such a gift. Third, there is unbroken silence in the New Testament regarding the actual making of such odes. The formation of an inspired hymnology was a most important occurrence in the former economy so that it is signalized in the Old Testament. We might reasonably expect, therefore, that there would have been some hint at least of, some, of a similar phenomenon in the apostolic church and the more because the long-standing ordinance of psalmody would have been altered thereby. Fourth, not one such hymn nor yet a single authentic vestige of one has been preserved. There are no canticles in the third gospel though hasty writers speak of the hymns of the nativity. The songs of the apocalypse are not quotations from a hymn book but integral parts of the apocalypse itself. They belong to the visions which John saw as he was swept away into the heavens. The assertion that there are hymnic fragments scattered over the New Testament rests on a sheer conjecture, a little euphonious Greek being all that can be cited. Footnote Dean Howson, commenting on the conjecture that a certain passage in Romans is a lyric quotation, says, 
The fact that the passage can be broken up into a system of irregular lines consisting of a dochmiac and choriambic feet proves nothing because there is, a, there is scarcely any passage in Greek prose which might not be resolved into lyrical poetry by a similar method. Just as in English, the columns of a newspaper may be read off as hexameters, spondaic or otherwise, quite as good as most of the so-called English hexameters which are published. End of quote. Life and Epistles of St. Paul by Coney Beer and Housen, Volume 1, page 195. End of footnote. Of an alleged apostolic hymnody, a recent critic so competent as Edward Roos of Strasbourg has said that, quote, it cannot be proved from the doubtful traces which have been adduced as evidences, therefore. End of quote. Quoted from History of the New Testament, Volume 1, page 162. There being no relics of an apostolic hymnody extant, the presumption is strong that there never was such an hymnody. Had extra-psalmodic hymns and songs of inspired origin been current in the early church, they could not all have perished. Fifth, as Sheen states in the Encyclopedia Biblica, article on hymns, the language of Paul presupposes a stock of songs which were known by heart and easily rose to the lips. Is it supposable that within a generation after the death of Christ, a collection of apostolic odes coordinate with the Psalms had crystallized into shape and that these were familiarly known in the churches of Asia Minor which were less than ten years old? Reviewing the argument, surely it may be held as a moral certainty that in the infant church of the New Testament there was no creation of inspired hymns for social worship. Even though, however, the opposite was admitted, the fact must still be faced that such productions were short-lived and are lost beyond recall. The matter, therefore, would remain precisely the same as to us, for no human composures can replace what were God-breathed. The ground is now cleared for insisting that the praise songs of these twin passages are those of the Psalter alone. As a counterpart to the interpretations which have been negatived, it is susceptible of absolute demonstration that the three terms were applied to the Psalms of Scripture long before Paul wrote, and that this usage was universally prevalent in the church of his day. For the proof of this, we rely chiefly upon the Septuagint. The Jews of the dispersion, not only in Egypt, but in Western Asia and Europe, spoke Greek habitually. During, During the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., there was made in their interest the Greek version of the Old Testament styled the Septuagint, 70 so-called from the legend that it was executed by 70 translators. It is, its use spread rapidly, and at the dawn of the Christian era, all Hellenistic Jews read their Bible through this medium. Philo of Alexandria, the best representative of the Hellenists, depended wholly upon the Septuagint, and Josephus himself, a Palestinian Jew, cites it more than he does the Hebrew. Accordingly, the heralds of the gospel found this version ready to their hand, and it went with them wherever Greek was understood. Just as the New Testament was written in Greek for Greek-speaking peoples, so the Old Testament, the only scriptures of the early apostolic period, was circulated through the church in the Greek dress of the Septuagint. That the apostles were well acquainted with this translation and commonly used it 
is shown in that two-thirds of their Old Testament quotations are from its pages. Turning to the recipients of these letters, it is granted that the, the Christians in Asia Minor were predominantly Gentile, and yet as Ramsay has proved, in the Church in the Roman Empire and St. Paul the Traveler and the Roman Citizen, Jews were numerous in this region, particularly in the Greco-Asiatic cities, and the Book of Acts makes it plain that they and their proselytes were the nuclei of the churches there planted. See Acts chapter 13 verse 14, also 14 verse 1, 16 verse 1 and 3, and 19 verse 8 and 10. This alone guarantees that the Septuagint was in ordinary use in these communities, and even though a Jewish element is shut out from the reckoning, the Gentile Christians at Ephesus, Colossae, and elsewhere could have read the scriptures in that version only, which was in general currency, and which had received apostolic sanction. It follows that the Psalter songs, which, it is almost unanimously admitted, were an integral part of their worship, and which were chanted to their Greek music, must have been from the translation of the Seventy. Consulting this great version, the most cursory reader will find, first, that there is a steady reoccurrence of these three designations, psalms, hymns, and songs, in the formal titles to the compositions of the Psalter. Second, that the terms hymns and songs, with their related verbs, occur again and again in the text or body of the Psalms. And third, that the same terms are employed frequently in the historical books, both canonical and apocryphal, with reference to the Psalter. Besides the caption of the entire Psalter, which is the Psalm, it is well known that most of these inspired odes have headlines of their own. In 67 of these, of these the word Psalm appears. In Psalm 1, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9... 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 29, 30, 31, 38, 40, 41, 43, 44, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51, 62, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, 68, 73, 75, 76, 77, 79, 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 87, 88, 92, 94, 98, 99, 100, 101, 108, 109, 110, 138, 139, 140, 141, and 143. In 6, the word hymn, Psalm 6, 54, 55, 61, 67, and 76. And in 35, the word song, Psalms 4, 18, 30, 39, 45, 48, 65, 66, 68, 75, 76, 83, 87, 88, 91, 92, 93, 95, 96, 108, 120, 121, 122, 123, 124, 125, 
126, 127, 128, 129, 130, 131, 132, 133, and 134. The same Greek words used in the passages before us. Still further, psalm and song are conjoined 12 times in Psalm 4, 30, 48, 65, 66, 68, 75, 83, 87, 88, 92, and 108, and psalm and hymn twice in Psalm 6 and 67. In the heading of the 76th Psalm, all three terms stand side by side just as here, and the heading of the 75th Psalm contains psalm and song, while in the first verse of the, spo- of the composition is spoken of as a hymn. It is noteworthy also in these compound inscriptions that our terms interchange easily, and that hymn is written repeatedly in the plural, suggesting that in the estimation of the seventy, it was applicable to all the poems of the Psalter. There are such various phrasing as a psalm of a song, a song of a psalm, a psalm a song, in psalms a song, in hymns a psalm, in hymns a psalm a song. Turning from the titles of the Greek Psalter, the terms hymn and song with their cognate verbs and substantives are interspersed freely through the text as well as its odes being descriptive of these compositions. See Psalm 9 verse 16, 22 verse 22, 40 verse 3, 65 verse 1, 69 verse 30, 71 verses 6 and 8, 72 verse 20, 92 verses 1 through 3, 100 verse 4, 118 verse 14, 119 verse 171, 137 verses 3 and 4, 144 verse 9, and 148 verse 14. Three citations out of 16 will suffice. The 40th Psalm, 3rd verse, runs, He put into my mouth a new lay, a hymn, Greek word, to our God. At the close of the 72nd Psalm, there is the line, The hymns, Greek word, of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. This colophon may apply to the entire preceding collection, Psalms 1 and 72, inclusive, as Piron contends, or it may have been attached to some group of Davidic Psalms incorporated in the Psalter. In either case, it shows that the 70 translators comprehended psalms indiscriminately and collectively under the name hymns. Again, in Psalm 137, verse 3, we read, There they who took us captive demanded of us words of song, Greek word, and they who led us away said, Chant us a hymn, Greek word, out of the songs, Greek words, of Zion. Here the word songs, Greek word, covers all the psalms and a hymn that may be selected at random from these songs. When we pass from the psalms themselves to the historical books of the Septuagint, the terminology is identical. In 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and Nehemiah, there are 16 instances of this, and in them the psalms as a plurality are called hymns or songs indifferently, and the singing of them is called hymning. See, 2 Samuel 6 verse 5 and 22 verses 1 through 2, 1 Chronicles 15 verse 22, 
also 16 verse 42 and 25 verse 6 Second Chronicles 5 verse 13 chapter 7 verse 6 23 verse 13 and 18 29 verse 30 and 34 verse 12 also Nehemiah 12 verse 24 27 36 and 46 in the apocryphal books of the Septuagint likewise sometimes considered an appendage to the Old Testament sometimes a part of it the same sustained usage catches the eye at least ten times as will be seen by examining the wisdom of Jesus the son of Sirach or Ecclesiasticus and the first and second books of Maccabees see Ecclesiasticus 47 verse 8 and 51 verse 11 also first Maccabees 4 verse 24 33 54 and 13 verse 51 and second Maccabees 1 verse 30 10 verse 7 38 and 20 and 12 verse 37 this then is the multiplied and cumulative witness of the Septuagint Paul's Bible and the Bible of the Asia Minor churches does it not point indubitably to the conclusion that the apostle intends nothing but the Greek Psalter when he employs the three denominations it had worn so long and which would recur readily to every mind? And here it is worthwhile to observe again his injunction. He does not tell those addressed to make psalms, hymns, and songs, but to use such as they had, and with which they are assumed to be conversant. And what were these? What in the circumstances could they have been, in the thought of either the writer or the readers, but, but that divine system of lyrics, known by these three ancient titles, and which, so far as history reveals, was the only compilation of sacred songs known by any name. Let it be supposed that the book of Psalms alone had been used in the Christian church up to the present, that it had taken root in the affections of the people, and that in the authorized version of the Bible and the popular praise manuals its 150 odes were styled psalms, hymns, and songs. Suppose next that a pastoral letter was dispatched to our congregations, advising the people to let the word of Christ dwell in them richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What would be understood by the exhortation? The question answers itself. But these were precisely the conditions among the churches of Asia Minor. According to the principles of historical criticism, therefore, the evidence is ample and decisive that these passages reproduce the technical Psalter designations of the Septuagint. As against successful dissent, notice that authorities are practically unanimous that in the first of the three words, the Psalter is referred to either exclusively or chiefly. Footnote. So Dr. Alexander, Bishop of Derry, Bloomfield, A.D., Hodge, Lanthrop, Lightfoot, McLaren, Ohler, Alshausen, Roos, Salmond, Steyer, Tholuck, and most commentators. End of footnote. Bruce and others count it inconceivable that the word psalm should have a wider sense anywhere in the New Testament. Footnote At 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26 some find in Greek word a reference to an improvised effusion of an inspired character but writers like Vinnie, Trench and Bruce oppose this and make the usage of the word absolute. The latter position is maintained also in the Encyclopedia Britannica article on hymns and by Graham in his commentary on Ephesians and a footnote it being settled then that the apostle in penning the word psalm had definitely before him the Psalter in its Greek address 
How is it possible to deny fairly that the terms which he conjoins with psalms are limited to that customary application of them to the Psalter which is testified to by the Septuagint? In such a grouping, coordinated with psalms and without any new use of them being hinted, how could they have been diverted from their stereotyped meaning? Our position already well fortified receives striking confirmation outside the Alexandrian version. Philo, the learned Jewish philosopher, writing during our Lord's life and immediately after, he died in A.D. 40, never once uses the word psalm or its compounds in connection with his many quotations from the Psalter, but always him or one of its compounds. This leads Shane to surmise that Alexandria had a special edition of the Greek Psalter with hymns as its running title. See Bampton Lectures for 1889, page 12. While Edwin Hatch accounts for Philo's practice on the theory that hymns was the older designation of the Psalms. See Essays in Biblical Greek, page 174. Flavius Josephus, the celebrated historian who represents Jewish Hellenistic literature in the generation which followed Philo, tells how David composed songs, songs and hymns and alludes repeatedly to the Psalms as hymns. See Antiquity of the Jews, Book 7, Chapter 12, Section 3, also Book 11, Chapter 3, Section 8, Chapter 4, Section 2, and Chapter 9, Section 6. The New Testament itself, elsewhere than in these passages in Ephesians and Colossians, agrees unmistakably in the same witness. In Matthew 26, verse 30, and Mark 14, verse 26, it is recorded that after the institution of the supper, our Lord and his apostles hymned or sung in him. All grant that what Jesus is thus described as seeing on that sad night was the second part of the Passover Hallel, Psalms 115 and Psalm 118, inclusive, and yet the evangelists call this the singing of hymns. Footnote, they use the particle of Greek word, Greek word a verb correlated, correlative with Greek word. End of footnote. Let it be noted that these gospels echo the established habit of the church at that time at the time when they were written. Footnote. The coincidence of the two gospels in the use of Greek word proves this. End of footnote. And that they and our two epistles belong to the same decade. And now massing what has been gleaned from the Septuagint from the eminent Hellenistic authors named and now and from the New Testament itself it is indisputable that during apostolic days in both Jewish and Christian circles it was the custom to refer to the lyrics of the Psalter as psalms, hymns, or songs indifferently. So fixed indeed was this that it persisted in the early Greek fathers and in the second century Greek versions of the Old Testament that of Aquila, that of Theodosian, and that of Symmachus. According to the interpretation of these passages here upheld, the different terms are taken as synonyms. This is certainly true in the Septuagint, where psalm, hymn, and song interchange promiscuously, where in fact the same Hebrew noun is translated hymn and psalm. Footnote, the word niganoth is rendered hymns in the inscription of the Psalms 6, uh, 54, 55, 61, and 68, as well as 76 while in the inscription of Psalm 4 it is rendered psalms.
and where, in the plural, as here, each word is an appellation for the whole Psalter. Even some who do not find in these New Testament terms an exclusive reference to the Psalter appreciate that they are synonymous, though the admission is damaging because of the generally accepted signification of Psalms. Footnote Lightfoot on Colossians 3.16 says that it is quite possible for the same song to be at once Greek word, Greek word, and Greek word. Aurelo Cohn says that these three terms are essentially synonymous and the slight shades of meaning between them are not easily definable. End of footnote. That the poems of the Psalter answer in reality to each one of the terms is patent. In Dr. J. Addison Alexander, as Dr. J. Addison Alexander said of them, quote, They are all not only poetical, but lyrical, that is, songs, poems intended to be sung, end of quote, taken from Introduction to Commentary on Psalms. They are psalms also, for their original rendition was with instrumental accompaniment. Footnote, Greek word is from Greek word to play on a stringed instrument. End of footnote. And they are hymns in that they are intrinsically religious, embodying adoration, thanksgiving, confession, and supplication to God. So pronounced is their character that they have received the designation of hymns continuously from the first. The old Hebrew name of the Psalter, that of the Rabbins, and subsequently that of the Talmud, was Sefer Tshilim, footnote, from Tehillah, Praise, Song of Praise, and a footnote, Book of Praises, or, as it might be paraphrased, Hymn Book. Then comes the early Greek usage, Biblical and Extra-Biblical, already rehearsed. Succeeding centuries maintain the practice as is seen in the Apostolic Constitutions and in the works of such fathers as Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Eusebius, Hilary, Athanasius, Jerome, Augustine and Cassian testimonies from the Middle Ages might be multiplied at great length but Bede, the Venerable gives their gist when he speaks of the whole Psalter as called Liber Hymnorum by universal consent thereafter through the Reformation period and down to modern times the Psalms are spoken of incessantly as hymns and today in spite of the popular cleavage between Psalms and hymns all our dictionaries such as Webster the century and the standard identify the psalms as hymns. Scholarly writers such as Ewald, Stanley and Robertson Smith describe the Psalter as a hymnal, the hymn book of the second temple, temple or the hymn book of the reformed churches and psalms are stitched into collections of human compositions and labeled hymns with the rest. Against the ascribing of these three terms to the Psalter it is urged that songs Greek word has an attributive in the word spiritual Greek word which is novel novel and which forbids dependence on the Septuagint in the exegesis of these passages it is not psalms hymns and songs we are told but psalms hymns and spiritual songs the objection is plausible but it shrinks to the vanishing point and becomes a verbal quibble when the context when the context in Ephesians is noted the Greeks, the Asiatic Greeks particularly, were devoted to music. Song and jest, stimulated by the wine cup, were the entertainment of the social hour, and often these were coarse and wanton. Their very 
religious festivals included the orgies of Bacchus and Venus where vile phallic songs were a feature. In contrast with this wicked revelry, Paul tells his readers to enliven their gatherings with the joy which the Spirit of God imparts and to express themselves in the songs which he has inspired. The answer, therefore, to the objection raised is that while the terms psalms and hymns were marked out as consecrated, the term songs had become peculiarly besmirched in heathen parlance and the apostle adds the word spiritual to differentiate Christian song from all else and brand the opposite which he has in mind as earthly, sensual and devilish. Footnote Chrysostom opposes to this as Greek words satanic songs End of footnote With the occasion of the word spiritual cleared up it is submitted that the propriety of, the ap- of its application to the Psalms cannot be gainsaid. There, that they are in the fruit of the inspiration of God, hailing from men energized by the Holy Spirit, is reiterated in Scripture. 2 Samuel 23, verse 2, Matthew 22, verse 43, Mark 12, verse 36, Acts 1, verse 16, Acts 4, verse 25, Hebrews 4, verse 7, and Hebrews 5, verse 5 and 6 and is evinced in the treatment accorded them by our Lord and his apostles. In truth, their inspiration is perceptible, tangible. The book carries on its front the divine image and superscription, and it is not exaggeration to say that it is the most conspicuous product of the Spirit in the bounds of the canon. Here we abandon the defensive and contend that this praise volume is absolutely unique in that of its lyrics alone can it be predicated that they are pneumatic or spiritual songs. Among existing hymnals there is not another in all the world which contains such songs except as they have borrowed from the Psalter. Again it has been asked, is not this triple enumeration redundant if the Psalter is made the only reference in the three terms? Why such multiplication of titles? In reply, note, first, If there is any difficulty here, it is reduced but little by those who oppose us in the interpretation of these passages. They do not find three kinds of praise as consistently they should do, but they stop with a twofold classification. For notwithstanding all attempts, there has been a failure in distinguishing hymns and spiritual songs. They are able to isolate the psalms by themselves, but the hymns and spiritual songs remain fused and confused. As between you unifying the reference of two terms and that of three, the difference is not great. If there is tautology in the one case, there is also in the other. Second, it is common in scripture to call the same thing by different names in close connection, this in order to give a fuller and more emphatic description of it by specifying its various aspects. Paul himself resorts frequently to such accumulations. See Exodus 34 verse 7, Leviticus 16 verse 21, 1 Kings 6 verse 12, 1 Chronicles 29 verse 19, Psalm 19 verse 7 and 8, Psalm 119 throughout, 2 Corinthians 12 verse 12, Colossians 1 verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, and Hebrews 2 verse 4. Third, as a matter of fact, Paul's Psalter gave the Psalms these very titles, sometimes in combinations and twice in the triple combination of these verses. 
footnote, Psalm 65 and 76 are already noticed. The only other real titles in the Greek Psalter are Greek word Hallelujah and Greek word Prayer. This first is an interjection or exclamation and is found 18 times in Psalms 105, 106, 107, 111, 112, 113, 114, 116, 117, 118, 119, 135, 136, 146, 147, 148, 149, and 150. The second is attached to five psalms. Psalm 17, Psalm 86, Psalm 90, Psalm 102, and Psalm 142. Fourth, these precepts in Ephesians and Colossians have a lively and urgent context and it is in keeping with this to suppose that their heaping of terms is, as Dr. S.D.F. Salmon says, with a view to rhetorical force. Another objection advanced against our interpretation is that had the book of Psalms been meant exclusively, the definite article would have been prefixed to the three words. This article argument is quickly met. First, in the Greek Psalter itself, the article is not used in connection with any one of these three titles, not even with the prefatory Greek word. Second, Paul may have meant the words to be taken qualitatively. This is favored in Ephesians, where there is a tacit contrast with Bacchanalian songs. Third, in the New Testament Greek, as well as in classical, the article is often omitted before appellatives which denote a well-known object. See Weiner's New Testament Grammar, 7th edition. See 19, section 19. And it has been demonstrated already that these three titles were attached to a historical system of praise well known to the apostles and the Asiatic churches. Our exegesis of these passages now nears completion but it must still be verified as satisfying the demands of the double context. Consider first the relation in the Colossian passage between the indwelling of the word of Christ and the singing of psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Whether such singing is to be reckoned as the mode of imparting the word of Christ or as the outcome of its indwelling is immaterial at the present for in any event the psalms, hymns and spiritual songs spoken of must be in unison with the words of Christ and contain it. As to the phrase, the word of Christ, occurring here only, a documentary or literary conception of it is improbable. improbable. Let it be taken generally as the teaching of Christ, the body of truth by which men are made wise unto salvation and furnished completely unto every good work. And now we ask, does not the Psalter gleam and glow with the saving doctrines of Christianity? Does it not beyond the four Gospels reveal the mind which was in Christ Jesus? Were the rest of the Bible destroyed, would it not preserve an exposition of the way of life sufficiently clear to save a fallen race? Is it not a true instinct which has led publishers to bind up the Psalter with the New Testament as being manifestly of kindred nature? It was Augustine, the illustrious Latin father, who said that, quote, the voice of Christ and his church was well nigh the only voice to be heard in the Psalms, end of quote. Bengal spoke of the Psalter as, quote, a remarkable portion of the scriptures 
in which the subject of Christ and his kingdom is most copiously discussed. End of quote. More recently, Franz Delicht, the great German exegete and Hebraist, wrote, quote, There is no essential New Testament truth not contained in the Psalms. End of quote. These testimonies will stand. Christ faced himself in the Psalter, nor did he see in a mirror darkly. And his apostles, judging by the scores of their quotations, found in its oaths the messianic and evangelical element in abounding measure. The Psalter reference in these three terms conforms, therefore, to the requirements of the context so far as, the, as concerns the phrase, the word of Christ. Can the same be said of any rival reference? Can any pleader for uninspired hymnody maintain that in it there is a comprehensive presentation of the word of Christ equal to that in the book of Psalms? It was none less than Dr. James H. Brooks of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America who said a few years ago in the magazine entitled Truth, quote, It is difficult in any ordinary hymn book to find a dozen hymns that are in accord with the word of Christ. End of quote. Once more, by these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the Colossian Christians are told to teach and admonish one another. But since it is the usual manner of the Apostle to refer his readers to Scripture for instruction and admonition, and since for these ends he draws heavily upon the psalms in his epistles, the divine praise book is suggested at once as his only thought. Certainly it is hymns of a definitely dogmatic instructional type which are presupposed, and it is just here, in preceptive power and in doctrinal substance, that the Psalter hymns tower splendidly, splendidly above all others. The Psalter may be religion and not theology, as it is sometimes put, but nevertheless it has a thoroughly didactic character that is unapproached and unapproachable by lyrics uninspired. Thirdly, in Ephesians, the speaking one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is a sequel of being filled with the Spirit. Instead of the excitement of strong drink, be God intoxicated through the infilling of the Spirit and give vent to your joyous emotions in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So runs the exhortation. Here again, how exactly the Bible song co- songs correspond to such a connection. Receive the fullness of the Spirit and then pour out your souls in the hymns of the Psalter indicted as they are by the Spirit and redolent of His holy inspiration. The Numa and his own pneumatic psalm what God hath joined together in this passage let not man put asunder. The last clause in each passage is worthy of a moment's notice. In Colossians, according to the revised text, the singing was to be unto God as the object and auditor of praise, not to Christ distinctively and exclusively. This, as all are aware, is emphatically true of the Psalms, which, though full of Christ and specializing him over and over, do not forget his organic unity with God in the essence of the divine being. The parallel in Ephesians reads, To the Lord, yet there too, as as verse 20 shows, Christ is looked upon as the mediator through whom the sacrifice of praise is offered to him who is the ultimate source of blessing, God, even the Father. Summarizing the results of our exegesis, it has been determined, first, 
that the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of these passages included nothing that was uninspired nor any compositions newly inspired in the apostolic age. Second, that they are all embraced in the book of Psalms, this finding being based upon the impregnable testimony of the Greek Bible and Psalter used by Paul and the Pauline churches upon the usage of contemporary Hellenistic writers, upon the witness of the Gospels according to Matthew and Mark, upon the conformity of the Psalter to this threefold characterization, and upon the fact that an exclusive reference to the Psalms satisfies every postulate of the context. The alternative theory, though, as we believe, purely conjectural and arbitrary, has not been brushed aside in any cavalier style, for no statement in the process of exposition has been an overstatement, but has been attested substantially. If the exegesis now submitted be sound, it follows that the apostolic church employed the Psalms alone in the ordinance of worship, and that we restrict ourselves to them in this sacred exercise is a New Testament commandment. Under the opposite interpretation, let it be noticed, first, that the Psalms still have the primacy taking precedence of hymns and spiritual songs, and that most hymn-singing churches ignore this by confining themselves to a human hymnology. And second, that the singing of uninspired hymns in worship is not barely permitted, but is explicitly prescribed and is therefore binding, a contention which few would care to defend. Among the authorities upholding the foregoing interpretation of these passages may be mentioned the following. Clement, the celebrated Greek father who presided over the catechetical school at Alexandria. Jerome, the most learned of the early fathers of the Latin church, Biza, the friend and ablest coadjutor of Calvin. John Owen, the prince of English divines in the 17th century. Jean Daly, approximately 1670, a celebrated French Protestant minister. Cotton Mather, approximately 1728, the well-known New England author. Thomas Ridgely, a standard English writer on theology. Jonathan Edwards, approximately 1758, the noted American divine and metaphysician. John Gill, a learned Orientalist and Baptist theologian of the 18th century. John Brown of Haddington, Scotland, professor of divinity in the Associate Synod of Scotland, approximately 1787. William Romaine, an eminent author of the 18th century in the Church of England. Walter F. Hook, approximately 1875, an Anglican dean and ecclesiastical historian. The Encyclopedia Britannica, article on hymns by the Right Honorable, the Earl of Selborne. William Binney of Scotland, H. C. B. Baisley of Oxford, England, approximately 1883. E. L. Hicks, Honorable Canon of Worcester, Church of England. Edward Roos, of Strasbourg, the great Alsatian Protestant theologian, Taylor Lewis, for many years professor of Greek language and literature in Union College, Schenectady, New York, Philip Schaff of Union Theological Seminary, New York City, the distinguished Christian historian, approximately 1893, and the late John A. Brodus, 
of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at area code 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog.